Good morning, y'all. It's, uh, it's good to be back with you all, and it's, it's good to, uh, each time I, I come back, I, I see more and more familiar faces, and that's not just because our friends at Orland Park are here, but also those here uh, from Christ Community Church, so it's good to be back uh, with you all. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 2. We're going to be reading the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana. So John chapter 2, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. The grass withers, but the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is God's word. On the third day, There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when they have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious and wonderful Father, we thank you that you have called us back to yourself this morning to uh, be in your presence and to hear from your good word. Father, help us to receive now uh, your good grace, which you have prepared, Lord. And we pray that as uh, your word goes forth, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, and that you would be glorified this morning. In your son's name, amen. To raise a glass is to raise a question. So these are the the words of one Episcopalian priest named Robert Capon as he's reflecting on the nature of wine and and vivification, this process of of winemaking. And the the question he asks as he's considering wine is, is, is simply this. He says, in considering wine, this wonderful thing which the Lord God has made, it begs the question... What is the relationship of God to the world? What is the relationship of God to the world? And while that might seem like a strange question for some of us when thinking about wine, as though to ask in return, what in the world does God have to do with wine in the first place? I think that that question, that response, really does show our present conundrum. It really does show the problem that we are in. Because you see, miracles, like we see here in our story this morning, miracles are actually quite simple. Because in a miracle, you see the hand of God utterly and immediately involved in the process. 
But nature, nature is actually a mystery. Because in nature, the hand of God is unseen, or unfortunately, as we so often think, absent altogether. Capon says that for many of us, when we consider the world about us, for something that could not be at all without God, it seems to do very well now without him. And that is to say that for for many of us, when we look at the world about us and all the wonder and, and, and good things that it possesses, there is the world, and there is all that is immediately in front of us, and then there is God, separate and distinct, and as we so often think, somewhere else. But in thinking this way, though we may not realize it at the time, what we have actually done when we, when we separate the two is we've done the very hard work of divorcing the Creator from His creation. And so what we have actually done then is made it difficult for ourselves and tripped ourselves up to now we can't really understand why God has created what He has created and we can't understand its true meaning and purpose. This sort of thinking and asking, what does wine have to do with God? It's not just that we don't know how these two things relate to one another, but we ourselves don't know how to relate to God or to his creation. Mankind's relationship to wine really does give us this vivid picture of of our confusion. We so often swing... If you think about wine for a second, we so often swing back and forth from drunkenness to teetotaling, from abuse to neglect, to gluttony and overindulgence, to fasting and going without. And we within the church, we have even at times made the unfortunate misstep of calling evil what is good because we can't decide if wine is a drink of life to be indulged or a poison to be thrown out. Because like the rest of creation, wine viewed apart from the winemaker will only leave us guessing its significance and its purpose. But friends, it is a marvel and a mystery that the world does what it does. It is a marvel and a mystery that God created a fruit that can grow in in dry and parched soil and in scorching heat. And then when it it grows and it it flourishes, we, we, we pick it and we press it and we make it ferment. And then it brings forth and it comes to be something new. Something new is created. And it it climaxes as wine, which as Psalm 104 says, has the ability to make the heart glad. But you see, friends, like God himself, wine makes us nervous. Because when we make the misstep of thinking that God is not also the God of wine, that the God of miracles is not also the God of nature, and in so doing, we separate God, the winemaker, from the product of his craft, 
then we struggle to understand its significance. We struggle to see ourselves as the world's intended recipients. And we struggle to know very much about God at all. Well, our story this morning is, is going to help us tremendously to do just that. As our story this morning gets in our faces and it, and it screams to us something very important about God and His creation. And if we're paying attention, it has something very significant to say about you as well. So let's make a beginning of it. So we're going to go through this story this morning, three points. Uh, the problem, the requirement, and the better wine. The problem, the requirement, and the better wine. So first, the problem. Like many of us find ourselves in, our story begins with a problem of great need. As we read a moment ago, Mary, Jesus, and his disciples, they're all invited to a wedding, and uh, we're told that one of the worst things happens that can happen at such an occasion. The open bar becomes a dry wedding. For those of you who have been at a dry wedding, you know what I'm talking about. If you had a dry wedding, I apologize. I hope you know better now. Well, the open bar closes, and we're told in verse 3, Mother Jesus says to him, they have no wine. And while this would no doubt be a drag for, for many of us today, back here in the first century within this honor-shame culture, this would have been a catastrophe. What wedding celebrations, what we know of them during this time, they would have taken a week, possibly even two weeks. And to run out of all the necessary supplies, most particularly wine, that would have been to the family's utter humiliation. But there's actually something much deeper being symbolized here in this lack and in this need. Well, we're right to see this story taking place in a village wedding somewhere in Cana, sometime within the first century, what the Apostle John wants us to, to actually see here is that this story is, is actually giving us a picture of, of a much larger story that's taking place. Namely, that this is the story, a celebratory wedding is really the story of the seventh day of creation. That is, the last day that God worked after he worked six days. What did he do on the seventh day? He entered into his rest, what we call his Sabbath rest. Now, where, do, where in the world do I see that in this story? Well, look, look back at verse 1 of chapter 1 for a second. Let's look at how the book of John starts. The book of John starts in a nearly identical way as Genesis 1.1. It says, in the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning was Christ. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so here, John starts the story of Jesus right here at the very beginning of creation. That is where Jesus' story begins. And in verse 29 of chapter 1, if you have your Bibles open. Verse 29, it says, the story of Jesus continues, on the next day. Verse 35, on the next day. 
verse 43 on the next day until finally you get to where our story begins, which says, on the third day. And so if you're doing some simple counting, we find that the wedding at Cana takes place actually in this last day of the first week, on the seventh day. And while I think that all of us would do well to be a bit hesitant of anyone who's trying to do creative math and and proving a point from the Bible, I'm not going to be telling you all when Jesus is coming back this morning, so don't worry. Uh, But what we find is that Jesus is, or excuse me, John is actually quite fond of this number seven. Our story this morning is actually the first of the seven miraculous signs that Jesus does in the book of John. And so I don't think it's by any stretch of the imagination to see this story, the story of a wedding and of a celebration, really, as the last day, the final day, the symbolic setting of the ultimate Sabbath feast that will take place when Christ and the new creation return. Now, some of you might be thinking at, at, at this moment, well, that's neat. That, that's an interesting point, uh, but, but what's the point? Well, the, the, the point is, is really this. Friends, whether you know it or not, you are starved for a party. Whether you know it or not, you are starved for a celebration. You are waiting for something. What Scripture makes clear, both in Genesis and here in the book of John, is that you and I really are predisposed and created to itch for the ending of the story. We long for that tension of our lives to be resolved. We long for the happy ever after to finally come. And yet the problem, the problem that you and I find ourselves, again, excuse me, the problem that we find ourselves in over and over again is that we can't ever produce this ourselves. The tragedy of our first parents in Genesis, in the garden, was really that they never made it to the wedding. They never made it to the wedding. God's Sabbath rest was held out in front of them. And had Adam been obedient, had Adam done all that was required of him, then the feast would have been theirs. But instead, what happened? They exchanged their white dress for foliage and for leaves. And they exchanged the abundance of good wine for the fruits of toil and hard labor. And now, by the sweat of your brow, the earth will bring forth fruit for you. And so friends, whether you know it or not, you inherited this. And that might not stop us from throwing our parties. That might not stop us from going on 
vacation. That might not stop us from buying our own cases of wine and, 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 and we may drink and drink and drink. But like the wedding here in our story, you always run out. You always run out. Vacation always comes to an end. The bottle always runs dry and the hangover always comes. And the problem here in our story is one that you and I both know very well. Our lives are the problem of the wanting wedding where there's never enough wine There's never enough time. There's never enough money. And though you may work and work and work, and though you may hustle, and though you may search and search and search, you always come up short. You can turn out every single one of your pockets and you always come out short. To our shame, ours is the problem of the wanting wedding to have the actual ability to make that happily ever after come to fruition. And so what do we do? What do we do? Well, it brings us to our, our next point, which is the requirement. Well, Mary, who's certainly cognizant of, of this shame that would, that would come to the family, she goes to her son, and we don't exactly know how Mary knew, but she clearly comes to Jesus with this expectation that he can fix the problem. But Jesus responds to her in this rather awkward way. He says to her, Woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And while this response may not actually be as sharp of a rebuke as we might think back, back in this day, gune is, is this word, and, and it is a word for mother, but it could also be used as just simply saying ma'am. But in this response, Jesus is definitely putting some distance between himself and his mother. And in so doing, Jesus is raising the significance of all that he's doing here. And Jesus is really saying this, that that unlike Adam, and unlike every other person here on this world, I don't bend my will to anyone else, not even to the will of my own mother, but my will is only that of the Father who sent me. But even still, Mary responds in faith, and and she tells her servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, And and what next we're, we're told, that what this wedding lacks in wine, it really makes up for in water. In verse 6 it says, Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, so, so you and I, at this moment in time in the story, we are to be put off by the enormous amount of water that this wedding had. It's approximately 150 gallons. If you prefer the metric system, 550 liters. 
And what, what are we to make of these jars? Well, we're told that these were actually for the Jewish rites of, of purification. Or excuse me, what we know about these are that these are for the Jewish rites of purification. And that is that these were used for this practice of ceremonial washing that the Jews were instructed to do at various times. And so these jars, what we can say about them is they really do represent for us Jewish Old Testament law and all that it required. And so you could say that the issue at hand here, here at this wedding, was that they didn't have enough law. The issue was that they didn't have enough law. They didn't have enough law. Excuse me, they had more than enough law. They had more than enough law pointing them and directing them in all that they were to do. They had more than enough law, more than enough to drown in. And as the New Testament teaches us, drowning them in the law was the very point of it all. The sheer size of these jars is indicative of this great weight of the law and all that it required. And we see here also that, that there are six jars. Okay, and so here we, we, we should be thinking again of the number seven. Number seven, so often in Scripture, is this number of perfection. But there are only six here. And this is indicative, really, of the law's shortcomings. The law, as good as it was, could never produce in them the righteousness to which it required. The law, as good as it was, could never produce in them that perfect obedience, that perfect righteousness that it demanded. But it could only state plainly, this is the bar. This is what is required, and no less. And our problem is one of the same. It's not that we don't know what to do, but it's that we lack the ability to actually do it. We have more than enough law. We know what we're called to do. We have more than enough law to crush us and drown us because our problem is really that we lack the ability to swim. Who can do all that is required? This brings us to our last point, which is the better wine. Well, we see here that Jesus gives this command to fill the jars, and it says that it's only after they are filled to the brim does he tell them to draw some out and to take it to the master of the feast. And then we're told this, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And you see, Jesus is signaling here in this miracle 
is that it's only after the law's requirements are fulfilled. Only after all the law is fulfilled does Jesus then turn these waters of purification into something better. When all has been fulfilled, filled to the brim, then the floodgates of abundance open. The age of wine and feasting begin. Then comes the happy ending. And this was always the plan. If we look back in the Old Testament, this was the Old Testament expectation. When the Messiah was to come, what were they to look for? How is that time explained? Really quickly, in Isaiah 25, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of of aged wine well refined. Or Joel 3, In that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine. Amos 9, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. What a wonderful picture. What a wonderful picture. And so here, in turning water into wine, Jesus is signaling to all those who are privy that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And this is the point in verse 11. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the point. That his disciples would believe in him. And this story has the very same point for you this morning. But, there is an obvious question perhaps we might have. How? You weren't there. As wonderful as this report is, of Jesus turning water into wine. It, 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 isn't, it might not feel like the same thing as being there and, and witnessing this. How is this story a sign? Well, friends, I would argue that, that, that Christ has actually left you something better than what the disciples had here. Christ actually gives to you a fully-orbed picture of who He is and how God feels about you. And coming back to to Robert Capon's question that that we had in the very beginning when I said, to raise a glass is to raise a question. And, And that question was, what is the relationship of God to the world? The fact that Christ turned water into wine, that ought to scream something to you about God. Jesus turned water into wine. That ought to scream to you something that Jesus is not only powerful, but Jesus is joyous. 
As much symbolism as there is in the story, at the end of Scripture, just like we see at this wedding, what do we see? We see a feast. Not a spiritual feast. Not a symbolic feast. We see a real feast with real wine. And this shouldn't surprise you. If you think about creation for a moment and the fact that, that, that God didn't need any of this. God didn't need any of you. God didn't need any of His creation. But everything that He created is extra. The fact that God did not create out of His need should tell us that all else is superfluous. But that doesn't mean that, that everything is meaningless. That means that what is created is created out of God's love. Not out of His need. What is created is created out of God's joy and not out of His indifference. God is not indifferent towards His creation. God loves His creation and God loves wine. That is what we see here in Scripture. That's what we see here in the story. And we also see that plainly in the world about us. God created a very real world, plumb full of really good things. And friends, we don't need to try to make the secular sacred in order to enjoy those good things. What I'm saying is that you and I ought to know that God is good just by tasting the glass of wine that's in front of you. You can know that God is good by, by having that good meal that you're going to have later today when you leave this place. You can know that God is good by looking around you at those in this room and the good company of brothers and sisters that you find yourself in this morning. These are your gifts from God to do what? To enjoy. We in the church, we, we so often think that that piety is best expressed in aestheticism. We so often think that, that, that our piety is expressed in, in going without. But what Scripture says is that it is by receiving the world about you and all that it has as a gift is piety. 1 Timothy 4.4 says this, Everything, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so what is the sign that God has left for you that He is good and joyous Look around you. Taste and receive. 
What a marvelous sign. But friends, that, that's not the only sign that Christ has left for you. Creation, as good as it is, cannot communicate to you that God loves you. Creation, as good as it is, cannot tell you how to get to this wonderful and joyous God. Creation, as beautiful as it is, can never tell you how to be saved. That God loves you and that God forgives you. The sign that Christ has left you for this, the Christ, excuse me, the sign that Christ has left for you to tell you that God your Father loves you, that He forgives you, and that there is peace with Him, we see comes actually at the end of the story. So the only time that, that Mary, remember our other character, that Mary appears in the book of John is here in chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, and then at the very end of Jesus' ministry. So Mary is, is a bit of a bookend. Here, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you turn to John 19, at the end of Jesus' ministry. And friends, I want you to listen closely and hear if you can see, excuse me, and, and, and try to hear how these two scenes collide together. So Jesus is hanging on the cross and says this, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what is the sign that Christ has left for you to believe in him? That he is the Christ for you? It's not only that he turned six water jars into wine, it's not only that Christ fulfilled all of the Old Testament, that Christ is the only one who's actually able to do all that the law requires, but it's also that he drank what you and I deserved. Because Jesus drank from the jar that was full of sour and bitter wine, which was the only wine that you were ever entitled to. He now gives you something better. Because Jesus drank your dirty wine, he now gives you the cup of the new covenant of his blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
For your sin, He gives you His righteousness. For your shame, He gives you back your wedding dress. You don't need to drink bitter grapes anymore ever again. But now, He gives you new wine and new life. And He calls you to come and to sit and to sup with Him at His table with a clear conscience and a heart ready to receive. Friends, this this story reminds us that, that we in the church, we are moving somewhere. We're moving towards the feast. We're moving to the end of the story when Christ returns. You can be assured that you will raise a glass full and spilling over of the best wine to the one who died in order for you to be raised again. You will raise a glass to the one who died for you in order for you to make it to the feast. Jesus wants you to make it to the feast. May we receive Christ and all the blessings that He has prepared for you this day, this Sabbath day of rest, because for you, His children, He does not have wrath, but He only has gifts and grace for you. Receive them this day. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious, gracious Heavenly Father who gives gifts, good gifts to to His children. Lord, we thank You that, that You have given us Christ, who is our righteousness, who is our, our perfect law keeper, Lord, and, and, and though we squandered, and though we may squander every day to keep your righteousness and to, to live up to the calling to which you have called us, Lord, you make sure that we are going to get to the feast. And even this day you have given to us as a day of rest to enjoy and to prepare our palates and our taste buds for what it is that we will enjoy in eternity with you. Come, Lord Jesus, in your Son's name, amen.